Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. Like the, the mothers, when we celebrate Mother's Day for all the men in our church, we are honored that you're a part and that you are a, a part of what God is doing in our midst. And for all the gentlemen, all the men, we uh, thank God for you from the bottom of our hearts. And so, happy Father's Day, and gentlemen, enjoy this day. Uh, hope it's really special for you. We had a little get-together yesterday, because today is always the difficult, you know, and then about 3 o'clock this afternoon, whether I want to or not, I'm out, you know, I just, I just get a little tired, and uh, so we had a great, just a morning yesterday, and just uh, watching my son with his kids, and, and realizing that little boy, you know how it is, you know, that little boy that you helped uh, kind of raise, and all that stuff, now he's dealing with his little boy and his girl, and uh, and watching watching him deal with them, it's uh it's nothing like it. It was about a few months ago, quite a while ago. Uh, he was holding his son, and uh, you know, just newly born and all that, and just kissing him and kissing him. And I said, uh, I said, now, I said, now, uh, now do you know how much I love you? <laughs> he said, oh, Dad, I know now, I know now. And so, Dads, uh, thank you for all that you do uh, for the families, for the church for this community, society in which we live. We love you men more than we can put to words. You're here on a very special day. We're in the book of Acts, and I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Uh, it's incredible. Yes, last Yesterday, I must say, was, uh, was one of the services that, that, uh, that you do that will be uh, uh, etched in my mind for a long, long time. It's been just a glorious place studying through this particular place in the book of Acts. But before the service began, uh, Ashley uh, was the girl that, that, I don't know if we did it in this service or not, but we prayed that she was going off to Utah, to BYU, and, uh, and she was going to have a ministry there, missions there. And she came running down the hall from the, the lobby there, and she saw me at that end, and she came running, Pastor John, Pastor John, and I said, what are you doing back? I thought you were going to stay there for a while. And she says, oh, I, I wanted to come back and see my family and see you and be in church. And, and she said, I got such great news. And I said, what, honey? She said, uh, this past Wednesday, we let a young man who is a, a philosophy major, he's a brilliant guy. She said, we led him to Christ. And he prayed to receive Jesus Christ this past week. And I said, oh, honey, that's phenomenal. And she said, yeah, it's just the, the one, most wonderful experience that we ever could have. After the service, she introduced me to some of the people that were there with her um, <clears throat> from Biola. One gentleman was a, a guy about six foot seven, about uh, uh, an African American young man, just as good looking as you could ever expect a guy to be. And he just stood there and he was telling me about the experience of leading this guy to Christ. And he said, all we did really was quote scripture to him. We just kept quoting scripture to him. And we would defend our faith by, by quoting the word of God. And he, had, he made a confession that he said, I always knew there was something wrong. Something was missing. And he gave his heart to Christ. But this young man told me that uh, more than likely, if, if, if he announces that he became a Christian, they'll ask him to leave the university. I never knew this. He said, but those that are Mormons that go to BYU, uh, if they denounce their faith during that time, they're asked to leave. If you're not a Mormon and you're there uh, and, and you, you mess up, it's no big deal. 
but for the Mormons, it, uh, it is a big deal. So this guy has a chance to lose an awful lot. He has to go back and tell his parents and, and all of that. So uh, that was, I was about this high off the ground when she told me. And then I come in, and it was a couple uh, Friday that, that I, had a, I had the privilege of marrying. It was an outdoor wedding, uh, to Teresa and Ryan. It was such a great day, but it was so hot. When I got back in my car, the thermometer said it was 103, and I can sweat in a refrigerator for crying out loud. <laughs> and it was outdoors, and so I was perspiring through my suit, through everything, and I'm looking at these kids, and they're not even, there's not even a bead of sweat on them, you know. I'm thinking, how is this happening? Anyways, had the greatest time, and they're sitting in the front row on Saturday afternoon was Ryan and his wife, Teresa. They came to church, and I thought, you know, that reminded me of my wife and myself. When we got married at, in Eugene, Oregon, at Dr. Jack MacArthur's church, um, we loved that church so much that the following morning, after we got married on Saturday, we came to church, and Dr. Jack made so much fun of me. You know, he just what are you doing here? You ought to be on your honeymoon. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I didn't do this to Ryan because I remembered how it made me feel. I was a little embarrassed. <laughs> but I loved being in church. And, uh, and I thought to myself, in fact, I said it to them. They were sitting right where you guys are. And I said to them, I said, this is a great way, a great way to start your marriage. And uh, to establish yourself within the church and, and studying the Word of God. And so I told Teresa right there in front of all of us, I said, you've married a good man. I'm a good man that wants to come and to be in church. Well, gentlemen, thank you for being here. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. Where we are in the Word of God in Acts chapter 3. Let's get to that. Peter has just pretty much lowered the boom on the people that came to him. What he did was to tell them that they had sinned. They had missed the very one that they were hoping to look forward to. Remember? Look at chapter 3. Just with me. Just to just put a memory in this. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. And watch how Peter just kind of just cuts through everything and allows them to know that they are sinners. That they've missed the very Messiah. He says in verse 13, "...the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. The one, watch, whom you delivered up and whom you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. No, he says in verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember when, when he asked him, who should I release you, Barabbas or, or Jesus? They said, Barabbas, crucify Jesus crucify him. And so Peter mentions in verse 15, you put to death, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. He goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. Remember, the man who is born lame, whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brethren, verse 17, now, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. And so he starts off the second half of this message by saying in verse 19, repent. Repent and return, watch what it says, that your sins may be wiped away. 
You see, the Jews had not expected a suffering Messiah. Instead, they anticipated a great and majestic ruler. They expected a conquering king. So when Jesus arrived as a lowly carpenter and then died a a criminal's death, they missed him. But Peter explains, it's not too late for you. He says in verse 17, as we just read, what, what you did in ignorance, what you did in ignorance, it's okay. But what you must do now is repent. We're going to talk about that one word. That one word, repent, means everything to you and me. Everything. And I will grant, I will, I will, I will say to you, without any kind of reservation, it will be hardly preached from pulpits across the United States of America. Because it's a hard word. But it's a word that you and I must understand to understand what it means to have our sins wiped away. In that marriage that I did yesterday, Friday, the father of the bride, whom I now, they go to our church, and I, whom I now have fallen in love with as a friend, He's amazing. He told me uh, that he and his wife were looking. Uh, they found our church, and they were looking for other churches. And, and he went to a church, and I won't mention the church's name, nor would I mention anything about it other than this. He said to me, they went in, and they were carrying their Bibles when they walked into the, to the sanctuary. And the, the person that greeted them at the door says, oh, you won't need that. Don't worry. Don't worry. You won't need it. And he looked at him and he thought to himself, that's a terrible thing to say. Didn't say anything. And as, as fate would have it, when they sat down, they sat down beside a couple. Hi, David. Happy Father's Day. Love you, buddy. When they sat down beside a couple, the couple said to him, when they had their Bible, says, you won't need your Bibles. We print some things up on the screen. You won't need to worry about opening that. Just relax and enjoy the service. And he told me Friday that it was the most devastating day in he thanked God for you, us, this church, that he can find a place that will not compromise the Word of God. You see, to truly preach repentance, you're going to step on toes. But the fact of the matter is, the apostles were asked to do that. In fact, they were ordered. They were ordered to preach against sin so that people might know that they need to repent. Because without true repentance, we have nothing. And so Peter explains, it's not too late. What you did in ignorance, he said, you can still repent from. You might not know this, maybe you do. But ignorance is not an excuse for sin. We learn from Scripture that sin, any sin that we may do, no matter how it is committed, will separate us from a holy God whether you know you've done it or not. That's why it is essential that you and I confess our sins. You and I are called to repentance over the sin that we know that we've committed. And the more and more you and I study the Word of God, the more we realize we desperately need a Savior. Because Dr. J. Vernon McGee, of all the wonderful people that I read and study, he he said the, the older he got, the more he learned, the more he realized he was a wretched sinner and was in desperate need of a Savior. And that's the whole essence of the Scriptures. The Scriptures to, 
to show us who we are before a holy and righteous God so that we might fall down before Him and worship Him, but more importantly, so that we would know how to get to Him. And that's what Jesus Christ is all about. Without Him, you and I have no hope. There is no other name. There is no other way that you and I might come into salvation. And so we are called to to repent over the sins that we commit. But what about sins that you and I do in ignorance? I want you to see something. Let's take a look at it a little bit in depth. 1 John 1.9, before we read where we're supposed to be in Scripture. As a matter of fact, I just got convicted in my own little heart. Let me pray. I don't want to start any of this without uh, asking the Lord to guide us. May I pray with you, please? Father, please, uh, forgive me for I uh, started this without uh, coming to you in dependence. Asking you to hide me, Father. Asking you to do all the things that only you can do. More importantly, we've come to worship you and to honor you and to glorify your holy and righteous name. And so, Father, we ask that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, so that we might behold the most wonderful of truths, and that is the wonders of your most glorious word. Let us see, Father, your word. Move me aside so that perhaps, Father, instead of hearing what someone might be preaching We can read what you might be saying to us. We can sense that your heart is saying this to our hearts. So that we might, Father, worship you. Lord, uh, use this time, I pray, in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Here's what 1 John 1.9 is all about. I've said to you this before. 1 John 1.9 is like a a Christian's bar of soap, so uh, so to speak, so as to, to cleanse us. You might know this, and then again you might not. But there are two parts to 1 John 1.9. There's our part, and there's God's part. Our part is simple. The first part of 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin. That's our part. That's the only part we have in it. If we confess our sins. Once we do that, then God takes over. It says, if we confess our sins, then He is faithful, He is righteous, to do what? To, that's His part. His part is, once we confess our sins, His part is to forgive us of our sins. But here is the best part of 1 John 1.9. And it says, and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness, folks, means that He cleanses us not only from the sins that we confess, but also He will cleanse us from all the sins that we did not even realize or know that we did. He cleanses us from those sins that would separate us that we have done in ignorance. If we'll just confess the sins that we know that we have done. And so in your life and my life, it is of utmost importance that you and I, the moment we realize that we sin, that we ask God for forgiveness and confess that sin so that He can cleanse us from that sin and also cleanse us from anything that we might have done in ignorance that we didn't even know has separated us from God. That's God's part. That's a wonderful promise within the Word of God. Now, if we go back, if you go back, uh, actually... 
We're going to jump all over the place in the study. You'll see up here. We'll go to Jeremiah in a minute and then Matthew a little bit. And a couple of those verses I'm just going to quote you. Uh, you don't need to turn to. But we're going to go to Jeremiah in a moment. But throughout history, throughout history, God brought people to call other people to sin and to repentance. Always. Now, there are so many places that, that, that just to find one was, was difficult in and of itself, to find the right one. And I'm not even certain I did that. But I chose Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, is just one of many, many places in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, I want you to tell the rebellious people of Israel to repent. Watch. Verse 4. Jeremiah 8. You shall say to them, telling Jeremiah what to say to the people, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people Jerusalem turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return. Return in that instant means repent. In other words, to stop going in this direction and return back to God. The primary ministry, folks, of God's spokesperson was to bring people to repentance or to suffer the consequences of their sins. It is, I believe, in Jeremiah where he says, look, you are my watch person on the tower and you're to blow the horn. And if you do, if you tell the people of their sin, their blood shall not be upon you. But if you don't, their blood shall be upon you. We are to proclaim, we are to allow people to know that there is sin that needs to be dealt with within everyone's life. That's one of the primary purposes and ministry of people who speak for God. In the New Testament, you don't need to turn to it. There's two places. There's Matthew uh, chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4 are identical insofar as what it says. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist made that proclamation to everyone that he spoke to. He said to the people in the wilderness, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus Christ began his ministry in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, the first thing he proclaimed was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance, repentance, repentance was an ongoing theme throughout Scripture. So Peter does as obviously he was ordered to do. Look with me at Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. We have already learned in Acts chapter 1 and verse 2 that, that the apostles were ordered to do certain things by the Spirit of God. And they were ordered to establish the church because when Peter gave the first message, 3,000 people came to the Lord. So the church began. And so what Peter said to the, the believers, say us right here, he would say, here's what I want from you. Here's what the church wants from you. God wants you to be, as we, I, I know you're in Acts chapter 10. Just hold your place there. Just listen. Remember what it said in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. He says, I want you to be continually devoted to the things of God. Remember? That's what, 
That's what the, that was the proclamation that Peter made to these people that had just come to Christ. I want you to be continually devoted to the things of God. And then he mentioned in verse 42 what those things were. I'm going to say this again and again so that you and I will not be, we will not misunderstand what is the church supposed to do? What does the church look like? Well, a church is very easy to understand, really. A church is to be continually, be a group of people who are continually devoted to four things. The apostles' teachings, in other words, the word of God, so that we know what we should and should not do and how we're to act and react. But also, we are also to have fellowship with one another. That is to support, to encourage one another. Because we'll need each other in this world in which we live. It's enough problems to, to go through it alone. But as a family of God, we need one another to encourage each other in our time of trouble or need. That's fellowship. Third thing a church is to do is to have communion. We have communion so that there's a, there's a dual reason for communion. Number one is to remember. When Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But also communion was to be taken, and, or I should say it in a negative way, it should not be taken without first examining yourself to see if there's any sin in your life. So that you can say, for instance, within the body of Christ, we have something against somebody for whatever reason. And we, we, we realize when we take communion that we can't take communion rightly in this fashion. We've, we've got to ask God to forgive us if we've done somebody wrong or, or, or if they've done us wrong. We're to forgive them so that we can have this fellowship within the body of Christ, this oneness, this commonness we have. So that was communion. And then fourthly, he says, after you have the teaching of the Word of God, and you have fellowship with each other and you have communion, then you're to pray. Ask God. Ask God for whatever it is you need because He is that the one up there that can answer all of our prayers. So Peter says, this is what the church is. This is what we do. And obviously that's been passed on to generation to generation to generation. And so many churches have gone off and they've gone into this area that, that has taken them away from the very essence of what a church is. And so Peter does as he's obviously ordered to do, and that is to convict people of their sin and then call them to repentance for the forgiveness of their sin. Look at verse 42 of chapter 10. Peter says, He ordered us. These are our orders. God ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of Him, talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All the prophets, he said, bore witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sin. And Peter says, without repentance... There can be no forgiveness of our sins. As we saw in the beginning of his sermon, as I made note to you in verses 13, 14, and 15, he convicted them. He convicted them strongly of their guilt. But now, starting with verse 19 to the end of this chapter, he's going to give them hope. Let's read it. We haven't read it yet, have we? I've read from verse 19 to 26. Let's read. Watch. I know I already prayed, but that threw me off a little bit. Verse 19, repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth 
of his holy prophets from ancient time. Verse 22, Moses says, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Verse 24, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. Sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's repentance. I want to pray again because it's just a habit. Please let me pray with you. I'll make this one shorter. Father, please, please bless your word. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When Peter kind of told them, look, you've disowned, you put to death the very holy and righteous one of God. You put to death the prince of life. He kind of just chewed them out saying, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. Well, now he is saying, if you repent, even in the things that you've done in ignorance, you're going to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Your sins, he says in verse 19, will be wiped away. We learned other places in Scripture that God tells us when we confess our sins, if we repent over them, He will move our sins as far as from the east as from the west, and He will remember them no more. No more. So repentance is key. You and I, as a family, we need to understand what does God mean when He says we are to repent? Well, the word repent in Greek is M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Here's what it literally means. To repent means to change one's mind. To repent means to change our purpose in life. To repent means to change our behavior. Repentance involves far more, folks, than a mere intellectual decision. Repentance is a change of mind. Watch this now that necessitates a change of our behavior. I want to give you the best example I know of in Scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus gives a parable. This parable is amazing. What Jesus is going to do is he's kind of jerking the chain, so to speak, of those religious leaders who knew what he was saying, who heard everything that he said, recognized that he had to be of God, but they decided not to follow him. Yet, yet, folks, they were telling everyone that they were religious, that they were the right, they had the right stuff, so to speak. Jesus looks at them and he gives them this parable. And in Matthew chapter 21, he starts by saying in verse 28, what do you think? Now that, just stop there for a second. He kind of perks their interest. You know, he says, what do you think? In other words, think with me here, he's saying. What do you think? He says in verse 28, a man has two sons. He came to his first son and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. Verse 29 says, The son says to him, No, no, I will not. But afterwards we are told, 
the son regretted it, and he went to work. Then Jesus says in verse 30, this man now comes to his second son. And he says to his second son the same thing. Go out into the vineyard and work. And his son answered and said, yes, I will, dad. But Jesus says he didn't go. He's lying through his teeth. He did not go and work. Jesus started this by saying to them, what do you think? What do you think? Now he says in verse 31, which of these two sons do you think did the will of their father? And they said, without hesitation, I might add, the first. The one who said, I'm not going, but ends up going. Jesus then said to them, these people who knew the right thing to do, but refused to do it. He said to them, I truly say this to you. Tax gatherers and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. If you'll note in this parable, the first son not only changed his mind, but he also followed the decision with a change of his behavior. He said, no, I won't go. Went away, regretted that he told his dad he wouldn't go, decided he'd go, but not only did he decide that he'd go, but he went there and he worked. Worked for his dad. We are told in James, you don't need to turn there, you know, we are told in James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word of God, not merely hearers, who delude themselves. It's one thing to hear the Word of God. Oh man, hear the message, feel like I'm going to do something about it, walk out of here, and don't do anything. Simply hear it, but don't do anything about it. James says, don't be that type of a person who hears the Word, has it touch your spirit, and yet you don't do anything about it. John the Baptist went a step beyond all of this in Matthew chapter 3. Please look at Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist demanded, yes, John the Baptist demanded that anyone who claims to have repented or has asked for the forgiveness of their sins must validate this confession of Christ with the evidence of a changed life. There needs to be evidence in your life, in my life, if we've come to Christ, that we have had a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of behavior. The religious leaders, again, those righteous, self-righteous people, they came to John as he was baptizing people by the Jordan River. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, it says they were being baptized by him, him being John the Baptist, in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. He said, when he saw, look at verse 7, when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you, I, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But you know, we talk about today, you Christians, you know, we've got to be politically correct, right? We can't offend anybody. John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? I mean, what a way to start a message, you know? You brood of vipers? Who warned you to come here to me to get baptized? 
And then he said these words. Listen and watch and read it and understand it. Verse 8. Therefore, he says, bear fruit. In other words, if you're going to come here for confession, if you're going to come here for the forgiveness of your sins, he says you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Folks, you cannot say that you've come to Christ and not have a change of life. You cannot say that you've come to Christ and still continue on in your behavior pattern when you leave here, when you become hearers of the Word of God but not doers. There is a call upon our lives as believers that we are to repent. And that means that we are, have, we are to have a change. We are, have to have, we are to have a change of attitude, a change of our, our lifestyles. We're to bear fruit that we belong to our Lord and have truly come to repentance. James, again, pulls no slack. He says, look, he says, the person who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him is what? Sin. Oh my gosh, come on, James, cut us some slack. For us who know the right thing to do and yet don't do it, to us it's sin, James says in James 4, 17. Repentance changes our attitude, our behavior. Now, God uses different things to call us to repentance. First and foremost, He uses His truth. Look with me at Matthew. Are you still there? Matthew chapter 11. The truth of God's Word was given to mankind so that we might repent. And what he does, Jesus sharply rebukes three different cities. Cherosen, I think is the name of it, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He rebukes them strongly because they refused to repent after seeing miracles, which in those days a miracle was done so as to proclaim the truth. Watch what it says. Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew 11, Woe, woe to you, Cherosen. Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I say to you, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it is for you. And you, he says, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, Jesus says in verse 24, I say to you that it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the days of judgment than it will be for you. Truth ought to lead you and me to repentance. If it doesn't, then God will bring something else into our lives, and that is sorrow. God will use sorrow. Look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, please. What you'll see is there's two types of sorrow. Sorrow over our sin ought to lead us to repentance. Which is reason enough, folks. Reason enough. Think it through. Why all churches ought to preach sin so as to lead their people to repentance. Concerning sorrow, God uses 
Paul to explain in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, look, there's two types of sorrow. Watch. He says in verse 9, I rejoice. I rejoice. Not, not that you were made sorrowful. That's one kind. No, he says, I rejoice that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Pardon me? To repentance. He says, I, I'm, not, I'm not troubled that you were made sorrowful. He says, I am happy that you were made sorrowful to the point where you repented. He says, for you were made sorrowful, still in verse 9, according to the will of God. It was God's will to make you sorry over what you did so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. In other words, I've preached all of this to you, Paul says, so as to make you sorrowful so it would lead you to repentance. He says in verse 10, there is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. That that produces repentance without regret. That leads, he says, to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, that, that produces death. Let me give you an example. You know it probably already. There is people. There are people who are sorry. They're sorry that they got caught. They're not sorry over what they did. They're just sorry someone caught them in the midst of their sin. That's sorry. That type of sorrow leads to death. The sorrow that Paul is talking about, that God wants to place in your heart, in my heart, is that we are sorry that we offended in the mighty God. And what we did was offensive to Him. Not that we got caught, but that we offended Him. Which ought to lead us to ask Him to forgive us of our sin, which is true repentance. That leads to life or salvation. And so if God's truth won't lead you there, if having sorrow over what you've done won't lead you there, then God says, I'm going to still be kind and patient with you. Hopefully that will lead you to repentance. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. By the way, it is God's sorrow, no, excuse me, it is God's patience and kindness that He brings about sorrow in your life. That makes sense? It is God's kindness. It is God's patience that He allows you to be sorry over what you've done. Not sorry that you've got caught. Sorry that you offended God. Romans 2, 4, Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, of His tolerance, of His patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You don't need to turn there, but you can listen. It's a great verse, 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord's not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. Rather, it says, The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing for any of us to perish, but for all of us to come to repentance. Repentance. Repentance is the very key that opens up the door of of salvation, having your sins wiped away. Repentance is key. I say to you, the kindness of God, 
is that this church preaches to you the whole counsel of his word. I'm telling you, there are churches and pastors today who would not touch this topic with a 10-foot pole for fear they would offend somebody within the congregation. Let me tell you my attitude about that. I would rather be hard on you. I would rather tell you the truth and be hard on you rather than to be soft with my Lord. I would rather, he says, nice going, than you say, nice message. I want God to be pleased with what we're doing here. More than anything else I can tell you. Because it is he that's going to change your life and my life. It is going to be he that will make us be the people that he has created us to be. And you and I will not be that person until we understand the whole counsel of God's word. And so it must be preached. We are being kind to you. I cannot love you any more than what I am loving you right now by telling you the truth from the word of God as far as I understand it. And letting God deal with your life. So if truth doesn't move us to repentance, so if our sorrow won't move us to our repentance, so if his kindness and his patience for us won't move us to repentance, then God brings in another method, and that's fear. Fear. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. I've said this to you before. In fact, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. As you're turning there, listen. I said to you this before. The, the best quality I had as an individual before I became a Christian was, was no one had to tell me that I was a sinner. I knew that. And I knew if there was a heaven and if, God forbid, there would be a hell, I knew where I was going. I had very little chance in going to heaven the way I saw my life. So what I reasoned within my own heart of hearts was that I tried to wipe out that there was a God at all. But if there is a God, I said, he must be kind. He must be loving. So he couldn't send people to hell. So I reasoned there's no hell. I had to. There's the only way I could get any rest. Because I knew if something happened. I remember once, I think I told you this. We were flying on a, on a flight. We were going to play, I think it was in St. Louis. And we were going through a thunderstorm. And we were, Bill, you'd know about this more than I would. We were in the Electra. You know, it couldn't get above the weather so much, so we were trying to fly around it. Is that kind of true? Trying to see the cloud bank and all that? But we were hitting, you know, it was like a knuckleball. We were all over the place. And I got so scared because sometimes it felt like we were going to drop just right out of the sky. And I looked around and I saw Sandy Koufax sitting there and I said, oh, Sandy's not going to die. We'll be okay. That was my, that was my, that was my only hope. <laughs> Certainly God wouldn't kill Sandy. <laughs> That was my only hope in that plane. I knew that if something happened to me where I was going, I was afraid to death of dying. Because I was afraid to death to go spend an eternity in hell. And one of the methods that God uses in our lives to make us repent is fear. I thank God for fear. It was fear that drew, that drew me to Jesus Christ. Look what Paul warns in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. He said, look, Having overlooked the time of ignorance. In other words, it's been overlooked, folks. The things that you did wrong, it's been overlooked. Those things that you did wrong in ignorance, it's been overlooked. God now, though, is declaring to you that all people everywhere should 
repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man, namely Jesus Christ, of course, whom he has appointed, having furnished, furnished proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. The sobering reality, folks, that there is a coming judgment ought to cause any rational thinking person to repent and to come to God for the forgiveness of their sin. The Bible also teaches, the more we understand and know it, that there's no other way. There is no other name given among mankind by which you and I must be saved. There's no other way of escape. Jesus himself said, without stuttering, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you don't come to the Father except through me. There's no missing what he has said. And so Paul says, God so desperately wants you that if you won't listen to his truth, if your sorrow won't drive you to repentance, if, you're, if his kindness and patience waiting for you won't do it, then by gosh, he's going to scare you to death. He's going to bring the fear of God in you for the coming judgment so that you will, by His kindness, come to repentance. So you'll have your, the forgiveness of your sin. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And so in all of this, what, Paul, what Peter is teaching here back in Acts chapter 3, let's close it up. Truth, sorrow, kindness, patience, fear. If any of these things bring you to repentance... Peter says, praise God, and here's the promise that God gives to you. If you've come to true repentance, where you've had a change of heart, where you have a change of your behavior pattern, God, it says in verse 19, will forgive you of your sins. Your sins will be wiped away. Also, if you've come to repentance, he says in verses 20 and 21, God will return to you. He will come and get you. Verse 20, it says that, the, that he might send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. The period of restoration of all things is another name for the coming reign of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Then he says, if you'll repent, look at verses 22 to 24. Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom... You shall give heed, give heed in everything that he says. Give heed. Oh, I missed my place because I looked up. Uh, give heed in everything he says to you. Verse 23. And it shall be that every soul, now he uses a negative, that doesn't heed, in other words, doesn't listen what the prophet says, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these things. You know what? They've always had orders what they're to say. They never preached their own message. They had orders from God. And so what, what Peter is saying is, look, and if you repent and listen to the words of the prophets, this coming judgment will be avoided. You won't go through it. Your sins will be wiped away. You will be forgiven. You won't have to come into judgment. You've passed out of death until life. And then lastly, Peter says, if you'll repent, you'll be blessed. He says in verses 25 and 26, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families, every family of the earth is going to be blessed. 
For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. Sent him to bless you. Sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. God wants to bless your life. There is no freedom, folks, like knowing that your sins have been forgiven. There is no freedom, folks, by knowing that you have had a change of heart. By the grace of God, if you say you accepted Christ and you're still living in a lifestyle that is deplorable to everyone around you, take a good look at yourself and repent and have a change of heart. Have a change of behavior. Come to know and to trust in Jesus Christ. By no stretch of the imagination does the Bible teach that once you come to repentance, you'll never sin again. The Bible's clear. You and I will sin till the day we die. And the more and more you know about the Word of God, the more you're going to realize that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, which will, in return, make you love Him so much more. It it draws you to your Savior. Repentance. Let's not misunderstand it as a body of believers. Repentance is a change of behavior. When John the Baptist looked at those brood of vipers that came and wanted, he said, who told you to flee from the wrath that has come? He says, I want you to show me good works in regards to your repentance. There needs to be a change in our lives, in this church, in the attitude of who we are with one another. I love you more than I can tell you. It's time to go home. Enjoy your Father's Day. Father, bless this time. Bless it, Father, please. Allow us, Father, to uh, sense the seriousness of Peter's message, the seriousness of, of what you want to say to each of us. Let us, not, let us not take this grace that has been given to us so wonderfully by, by a gracious and wonderful and caring God. Let us not trample it underfoot. Let us be serious about our faith. Let us truly come to repentance, changing of our attitude, changing of our hearts, changing of our behavior, Father. So bless us, please. Encourage us. Help us in this change. And Father, may we love one another. I pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you folks so much. It hurts. I thank you for being here. Have a great day. I love you. Very much.